Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Analyst and the Fool, Liminality, Comparison, and the Quest for Reality with the Little R. Today, very excited to have with me Brandon Wilson, who is a PhD student at Claremont Graduate University, focusing on comparing religion and scripture. So there's nobody better to have with us here talking about liminality and comparison than the comparer-in-chief himself, Brandon. Brandon, thanks for being here today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Why don't you go ahead and take a few minutes to introduce yourself better than what I just did? Well, I'll see what I can do. (laughs) Well, I guess I'll start out by saying that I'm not a native to religious studies. At least it took me a bit to become one. I started out as a psychology student at Utah Valley University. I was an athlete in high school. I played basketball. And coming out of high school, I wanted to be a sports psychologist, mostly because I actually struggled with what is usually called the yips in, in athletics, where, you know, when you're actually out there performing, you, you kind of freeze up, even though you're, you know, during practice and other things, you, you, you do just fine. So I, I was very interested in that phenomenon and wanted to be a sports psychologist. So I did a year at college and then served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So obviously this was before the age change uh, when you had to be 19 years old to go. In fact, I was on my mission when they did the age change from 19 to 18. And when I was on my mission, I was very fortunate to have a companion that introduced me to the writings of Hugh Nibley. Now, having the writings of Hugh Nibley was very contraband in my mission. We had a, I was in a very strict mission. We had a binder about four inches thick, full of rules, regulations, all types of stuff. And On top of the White Handbook? On top of the White Handbook. Wow. We had a very strict mission president, very strict man, very straightforward, very much uh, by the book, my way or the highway kind of guy. And reading Hugh Nibley was a very liberating thing for me. It was something I took a lot of solace in. Now, I didn't have any access to Nibley's books. In fact, I didn't even know that Nibley had books Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the time. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, which I retrospectively, I find funny just because of how many books Nibley has. Yep, right. (laughs) But he had a lot of Enzyme articles and a lot of articles from BYU speeches. Like I had his leaders and managers talk that he gave at a, at a graduation ceremony you know, that's heralded as a, as a classic at BYU. Right. The one that I particularly remember is his The Meaning of the Atonement, which was published in a four-part series in the early, in the late 70s, which was expanded and published in his Approaching Zion book. That one I found riveting because it brought in Bedouin robing rituals, the Hepet ritual, which is a ritual embrace within um, Egyptian temple rituals. He brought in the second law of thermodynamics. I mean, he was bringing in all types of things to talk about the atonement of Jesus Christ. And I was just blown away by everything that this guy was talking about. And it made me start to think not about my career path, but it started getting me to think about theological ideas. It started me, it made me want to understand scriptures. It made me want to understand what it was that I was teaching people because it made me realize I wasn't understanding much. And it actually took, when I was about a year and a half out, 
there was a member that we got to be particularly close with. He sat down with me and grilled me about the Book of Mormon. And he asked me particular questions about the Book of Mormon that I didn't have the answer to. And, you know, anytime I'd give him an answer, he'd ask for a reference, to which obviously I didn't have because I was just some stupid 20-year-old kid that didn't know anything. He did it to kind of flex on kids. He was a very, very smart man and took a lot of pleasure in showing missionaries how dumb they were. But he was compensating for something, probably. <laughs> <laughs> that was what, that was what, so my companion was, um, he was Tongan. And I guess he tried to do it with him. And my companion's like, did you want my fist down your throat or are you going to keep it up? <laughs> and that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> you know, so, but with me, it was, um, I've never liked being, I've never liked feeling dumb. I've never liked feeling ignorant. And so when it made me realize that I'd been out of my mission for a year and a half and I didn't understand what I was preaching to people, I didn't understand what I was actually saying when I was talking about the spirit, atonement of Jesus Christ, repentant, I didn't understand any of it when he was actually bringing these things to my attention. And of course, he was doing it just for the sick pleasure of showing off how smart he was, but it changed my life. Like it changed the way I thought it changed. It changed what I wanted to know and understand. And of course, having Nibley uh, as supplementary material, in fact, he was actually one of my suppliers for Nibley, <laughs> funnily oh, nice. enough. So that he was one of the people that, that helped bring Nibley more into my life. It was life-changing in that regard. He, you know, I was pointed in a lot of directions because he would never give answers. It was always, well, don't come back until you have an answer, which I would dig days. I mean, my personal study was probably some of the best that I'd ever had during that time period. Because I always, his name was Chase Splann. I always wanted to show Chase Splann that I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> so I finally get home from my mission and I'm so invested in theology. I'm so invested in comparative religion, you know, learning about the Egyptian religion, learning about the Greek mysteries, learning about, I mean, basically anything that Nibley wrote about, I was interested in. Um, started reading Mircea Eliade during that time period because Nibley quoted him a lot. So my understanding for these things started expanding, but I was still shooting to be a sports psychologist until my mother-in-law sat down with me um, and asked me how serious I actually was about being a sports psychologist after talking to her about all these things that I was learning from you know, reading Nibley's collected works. Because after this point, I, after getting home from my mission, and getting married, I was finally starting to buy Nibley's books sure, sure. and reading and reading them. So obviously I'm, I'm getting a lot more of Nibley than what I was getting on my mission. My, my mother-in-law just sat down with me and just said, I think you are going the wrong route. I think you need to reconsider your profession. And at this point, I, I had three semesters left of college <laughs> until I graduated. And at that point, I had already signed up for some classes and thought, well, then I need to drop some classes and look into doing maybe religious studies. I was actually more interested in studying Egyptology, but obviously UVU didn't have anything like that. Sure. So that's how actually I met you was because I, on a whim, signed up for, what was it called? Like literature in the sacred or the yeah. Yeah. literature of the sacred or something yeah, like that? Yeah, literature of the sacred. I, I, I had missed the first day of class. Because I had, it was actually during that first week of classes that my 
mother-in-law suggested a new course of career. And so I felt, well, um, I, need, okay. I, I need to take other classes than one I have. And so I changed my electives to be more in line with something along these lines. And so I took- Which, yeah, which could be another reason I, I remember you as the person who sat to my left with the hat. Yep. I, yep. I used to wear hats a lot. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, that makes some sense. Yeah. That makes some sense now. Yeah. It's because you missed, you missed introduction day. Yep. I missed introduction okay. day because at that time I was not even considering the class. And then I took Brian Birch's approaches to religious studies class. Okay. Because I thought that that would actually be a very good class to learn about the field. And it was, sure. it was a very sure. good class. And to make a long story short, following graduation at UVU, I got an internship at BYU analyzing Egyptian textiles from the hmm. necropolis that they dig at. So I worked under Dr. Kerry Mulestein for a few, for a summer. And he recommended that if I wanted to go to the Egyptology route, that I needed to get a language under my belt. He's like, he's like Spanish. I was fluent in Spanish for my mission. He's like, Spanish ain't going to cut it. He's like, you got to right. learn. He's like, you got to learn Greek. You got to learn German or French or something. And I was like, well, with, you know, with the resume that I have, would I be able to get into graduate school anywhere? And he's like, no, I think you need to, I think you need to figure something else out. So I went to the, I applied to the U because they taught Coptic at the U. Okay. So I thought that learning Coptic would actually be a very good route to learning, to getting into an Egyptology program. And instead, what I found myself understanding more and more as I studied Coptic under Randall Stewart, and even with the a professor that I kind of took on as a pseudo advisor, he wasn't really an advisor or anything. He just was willing to take me under my wing. His name was Brandon Peterson, a Notre Dame grad theology guy, Carl Rahner guy, actually. So, you know, it's, that, that was his expertise. <laughs> Gave me a lot of pointers, pointed me in the right direction. Um, heard me out, heard a lot of the ideas that I had. And he's like, you don't want to be an Egyptologist. He's like, you want to do a religious studies route. And I was like, um, okay. And what, what I study, he's like Gnosticism. <laughs> he just flat out just said Gnosticism. He's like Gnosticism, esotericism, hermeticism. He's like, that is your shtick. And I talked to my Coptic professor about it. He's like, oh yeah, go, go, go. He's like, I got some schools that you can look at. Um, I had actually applied here. So I applied to some grad schools. Um, one of them actually was CGU because they teach Coptic here, supposedly. Um, I don't know oh. if they do anymore, but they did supposedly because I was interested in studying Gnosticism. But then I saw April DeConnick at hmm. Rice, who, who's a special, okay. who's, who specializes in early Christian Gnosticism. Um, yeah, I got accepted to Rice went there and found out that April was on sabbatical that year. So I couldn't study under her, even if I tried and she wouldn't answer my emails, <laughs> but there was actually one of uh, my Coptic professors, ex students who was studying at Rice. And he told me that I would, that with my particular interests and even with me being a Mormon, of course, at that time, Mormonism was not on my, on the table at all. Um, sure. Mostly because, you know, going to the U and going to UVU, m discussing Mormonism was anathema. Like you just never brought it up in class, right, especially, yeah. especially yeah, in psychology yeah. classes. 
Um, sure. Yeah. Cause it was, you know, yep. psychologically damaging, yada, 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 you know, all that stuff that that's very sure. common rhetoric among, um, non-Latter-day Saint individuals sure. or undergrads. Anyway. So he told me that the guy I needed to reach out to was Jeffrey Kripal, to which I'm like, okay, <laughs> sure enough, Jeff answers my email. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes that's, that's all it takes. It takes. Right? And I told Jeff what I was interested in. And Jeff's like, that sounds interesting. He's like, here, take my class this upcoming fall. Uh, I can get to know you better. I can get to know your interests better. And the rest, as they say, is history. Um, of course, how Rice's master's program worked, I wasn't able to actually study directly under Jeff. Um, the hmm. advisorship was for, I had to work under those who were the MA director and assistant director. So I worked, so I worked under a, a lady named uh, Claire Fanger for a while. And actually she was very, very helpful in me learning how to write. <laughs> I, I learned very quickly that I did not know how to write as well as I thought that I did. And because she was an she was an English grad, she actually had a master's degree in English literature, um, okay. and then got a PhD in medieval studies. So that was that was kind of her. Shit. Okay, uh, I learned very quickly that I was a poor writer uh, from studying under her, and you know, <laughs> and I did my um, master's thesis on a guy by the name of Manley Palmer Hall. He was a 20th century esotericist. Um, a theosopher, I would probably call, I'd call him a pop culture theosopher, which I think is what makes him very uh, predominant, hmm. very important because he had a, he had a very big sure. hold in Hollywood. I mean, he was a, he was a, a secret spiritual advisor to people like Ronald Reagan anyway. And hmm. I remember sitting down with Jeff talking about my master's thesis and I didn't have too many ideas. And he's like, well, why don't we talk about Mormonism? And I was like, it had never crossed hmm. my mind. And he's to him, he was like, because you're Mormon, you have so much to say about it. He's like, in fact, even when you talk in class, I hear your Mormonism. And so he told me that the ideas that I had for my master's thesis talking about Manly P. Hall were good and that I should probably roll with it because I had already done a lot of research into it. But he recommended for my PhD program that I incorporate what I learned at Rice into Mormonism. He's like, there is a lot that you can say here that I think would be very important. Um, and I recommend going that route. And so I applied to PhD programs, of course, thought about Mormon studies programs in particular. So I applied to places like Virginia. Uh, I applied to Harvard, actually. Didn't get into any of those programs, but CGU ended up working out. And so that's how I got here. I'm here because of their Mormon studies program. I'm here because of Matt's expertise in that history. Of course, Matt, he even has some of some background, even in things like theosophy and spiritualism and things like that, too. So that's also been rather helpful. Sure. I mean, I guess that makes sense, right? If 19th and 20th, early ish 20th century religious history is your thing, then then you're going to come across it. Right. Yeah. Like esotericism is is very predominant in the American religious sphere during that time period. So, yeah, spiritualism, dowsing alchemical texts they're i mean they're gonna they're there sure sure and then of course Blavatsky yourself right so your your background and introduction actually does a lot for me in terms of kind of explaining why you wound up bringing 
to the episode today, the text you did, because mm-hmm. when you first sent it along to me, I was like, what in the world is, is going on here with, uh, <laughs> right. Al, I, I, I can't even like say his name correctly. Right. Algus. Algus Uzdevinus. Uzdevinus. Okay. Yeah. Philosophy and, and theurgy in late antiquity. But I think what you've done in wrapping up everything you did with what brought you here to CGU is also kind of give a good introduction as to why this kind of text speaks to you and, and how you think it's helpful in comparative work generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the work you plan to do uh, with Mormonism in your dissertation, where, where is kind of like, as you see it now, right? We're both finishing our first year of coursework now. So, I mean, the dissertation is still a little bit down the road not terribly far down the road, but a little bit down the road. So like, as you see it now with what you've just explained and kind of before we get into the text itself, like how do you see the dissertation project shaping up? So this is why this text is, is particularly important. I mean, of course there were plenty of texts that I could choose from. Sure. Cause I, I, I mean, we could even get to why I chose this one over say Gregory Shaw's theurgy in the soul, or even something written by Nibley, for example. Right. But one of the things that I found from my own experiences is I want to explore the theurgic components within Mormon temple ritual. Okay. And why I'm interested in that has a lot to do with my own personal experiences, not just with reading people like Nibley or into other people like Eliade or Uzdevinus or Rishar, sure. you know, or even reading theosophical texts or hermetic literature. But a lot of it stems from my own personal experience with the temple. So I was first initiated. I like using that word because <laughs> I think it's, it's a proper word for what you undergo with those experiences. So I was first initiated about three months before I left on my mission. And I did it at Manti, the Manti Temple okay. in, in um, central Utah. I chose that temple for two reasons. Uh, one, I have a very long family history with that temple. A lot of my grandparents were married and sealed at that temple. I myself, even later in life, was married and sealed at that temple. And then had family members that built the temple. So it's a temple okay. that has a lot of family history tied to it. Sure. And secondly, I wanted to experience a live endowment as my first endowment experience. Because I had heard when people talk, when I was sitting with bishops and stake presidents and they were talking about the film, I had no idea what they were talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and when I went in and, you know, and so when they finally explained to me, oh, well, you know, of course, there's so much reticence about the temple, too, which is something that I think is needs to be somewhat corrected. Sure. But when I went in and I I actually sat down with Ed Pinnegar who was the uh, temple president at that time. He's very, very popular Latter-day Saint writer, has tons of books published by Deseret Book. Of course, I didn't know who he was. <laughs> sure. But my mother did. And when he heard that I was a missionary, he called me into his office. And of course, Manti, they do sessions every hour. And we had we had shown up about 10 minutes prior to the to the session started at the hour, but because I had to go through the initiatory, we had just missed it. 
So we had to wait in the waiting room for an hour. Oh. And yep. so Ed Pinniger wanted to talk to me for that hour. He's like, how about you come and talk to me? I love talking to missionaries. He's like, not too many missionaries come to Manti. So I've, he just wanted to talk to me. And I don't remember much from that conversation, mostly because I had no idea what he was even saying. Sure. I think it'd be interesting to sit down now and hear what he had to say. Sure. But the only thing I remember from that conversation is that within the temple, you'll experience things that you'll never experience anywhere else in, in the world. And you'll learn things that you'll never learn anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. That was something that he promised me that would happen. And I thought, okay, you know, and I had no idea what to expect because there's so much, there was so much hush hush around the temple. I had I went into it completely blind. Like I had no idea what was going to happen to me. I mean, even the initiatory, I had, you know, I was told that I had to go through an initiatory and I was like, what is it? What is an initiatory? Right. Yep. <laughs> so that, that, that's how much hush hush I was getting from my family. And of course we went through the live endowment and I found that even though I didn't really completely understand what was going on. I understood the, the narrative, obviously, the, the Adam and Eve story that, that you undergo within the temple. But the one thing I did find was, for lack of a better term, an elevation of consciousness. It was, there was, a, I, I experienced something when I was there. Mm. And even sitting in the celestial room, I felt like I was in a different world. I couldn't explain it. Couldn't tell you why I felt that way couldn't tell you what was going on or anything of that nature, but it wasn't until I started reading Nibley and started learning about theurgy, you know, Neoplatonic theurgy and what it is, how it works, why they do it and what it means that I, and even studying some uh, hermetic literature and studying under Kripal that I, started understanding a little bit more or at least contextualizing a bit more about what I had experienced there hmm. so that's why for my scholarship it's not only scholarly like I, I do obviously have scholarly endeavors for what I'm trying to do but it's also deeply personal like I I have personal investigative reasons for trying to understand for lack of a better term, the nature of reality <laughs> with a lowercase or capital R. Sure. <laughs> I, I like that. I think that there's, as someone who, who sees the need for a more, uh, a more set systematic theology in all its facets, right? I, I think that that's something that would be valuable, especially for folks who are preparing to go and be initiated, right? I'm lucky in the sense where my dad teaches for seminaries and institutes and is, is, is more comfortable talking about the temple and what goes on there. So I wasn't, I'm one of the lucky ones who, who went in having an idea of what's going to happen, right? Because I think this is part of what you're getting at too. If you know what you're talking about, like, there's a lot you can actually talk about, right? You don't have to not know what, a, what, what initiation is, right? You don't have to not know like what goes on. So I like that. I think there's a lot of, but for you, as far as like, kind of like 
how esotericism works in the world in an academic way, but then also, like you said, I think that that's valuable for, for regular temple going, uh, Mormons as well. So that's cool. But before we go much further for folks who may not know what theurgy is and what it is and all the things you listed off a little bit ago, why don't you tell us what theurgy is real quick? So theurgy comes from the Greek theurgia, which literally translates to the works of the gods. Right. Oftentimes it's misinterpreted as conjuring, for example, like, like, like a magician may conjure spirits, like actually fabricate mm. a spirit. That's not what theurgy actually is. What theurgy is, is the working of a God in the material world. So it's, it's a God or a daemon or, you know, using the, the Hellenistic sense of that term, not, not, a, not a demon, but a, a daemon. It's a God, be it the Neoplatonic one, Zeus, Hermes is a big one. Hermes is a huge one within these types of practices, or even Persephone within the Eleusinian mysteries, for example. Hmm. It's actions that allow the gods to then work among humanity. So the theurgist, such as somebody like Iamblichus of Syria, are performers of ritual action, but it's not the ritual action that's theurgy. It's the God actually descending down and manifesting itself by the ritual action. That is theurgy. So to use a Latter-day Saint word, it's revelation. So God giving one a revelation is, is a form of theurgy. It's God working or manifesting something to the human being. That is a form of theurgy. And prayer is a component that allows theurgy to happen. In fact, in Iamblichus's texts on the mysteries, he, he says that prayer is the chief component for theurgy. Without prayer, there is no theurgy. Hmm. One of the key components of Neoplatonic theurgy was actually the animation of statues, which actually harkens a lot back to ancient Egyptian practices. And actually, it's even very reminiscent in um, a lot of Brahmanic practices as well within Indian temples dedicated to various gods. You have the, you know, the figure of the god who actually is supposed to be the god. It becomes that through a sort of dedication whereby the god can then manifest itself through the statue itself. So Iamblichus animating a statue or a, an amulet the whole point of the ritual action or the ritual statue is to create a space that the God can manifest him or herself to the individual so that the individual can be taught the, the higher ways. Hmm. So that's, that's interesting. And it, it, I know this is kind of unrelated, but it makes, it makes the notion of real presence in the Eucharist an interesting kind of thing. Well, and it's funny you mentioned that because uh, this particular text, Philosophy and Theurgy in Late Antiquity by Us Divinus, it's published by Angelico Press, which is a Catholic press. Right. And Us Divinus himself is devoutly Catholic. Okay. So in fact, a lot of what, but a lot of the reason why it's even published through this particular press has to do with this relation that this, this type of practice has to the mass. Yeah. 
No, that's interesting, especially with Mike always clarion call that we need a kind of systematic theology. We like we 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 waffle between real presence and not real presence, right? In in mm-hmm. in our in our Americanness and and everything that goes into our Americanness, we can't decide whether or not we want the sacrament to be explicitly in remembrance of, right? Or mm-hmm. like actually, and it, that gets into a little bit of transubstantiation, but as far as like whether or not Jesus comes, I can't remember who it is off the top of my head, but he says that we ought to prepare for a sacrament meeting as if Jesus was going to walk through the door. Oh, that's Truman G. Madsen. Is it? Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And in one of those interesting ways where for, for, for Mormons, the only place where there's an altar outside the temple is mm-hmm. in the chapel. Right. Yes. So, okay. No, that's interesting. Well, and actually I discussed with you before about getting kicked off of a Mormon subreddit. This right. Is the, this is why I, oh, okay. I, this is, this is why I brought transubstantiation even to the table is because the, the joke that I usually hear from pro transubstantiationists are, it's like, does it matter if it's symbolic cannibalism or literal cannibalism? It's still cannibalism <laughs> because of people that try to argue that it's, that it's cannibalism. But that was the kind of arguing that I was trying to have in a sense was it's like, you know, if, if it's a, if it's a symbolic remembrance of Jesus, then does it actually have any sort of, you know, because when you try to, to downplay whether or not, as you said, Jesus is actually there, whether you're, you're literally eating Jesus or not, I think is superfluous to the problem. Sure. But it, you know, and this is why I think theurgy is a very important hermeneutic for this type of theology, not just because it allows Catholicism and Latter-day Saints to be put into conversation with one another, but because it actually opens up a metaphysic for Mormons to start considering that maybe they had not quite considered before that I think is actually present, that that's all over Latter-day Saint theology, you know, in the way in which they talk about the sacrament and what it does and why we do it and why it's such, I mean, I brought up Truman G. Madsen. He calls it the most paramount ordinance in the church. Right. It's the one that's done weekly. And if Jesus were to ever come, if Jesus ever came back, that would be the ordinance that he performed. And it's like, well, why? I, I, I think it has a lot to do with this metaphysical reality, this theurgic reality that it can impose if one is, I guess you could say, opens their imaginations to it. Mm, interesting. So, so what, what kind of like, what advantages, right? You've talked a little bit about this, but like explicitly, what kind of advantages do you see in using theurgy specifically as a way into comparative work? It's twofold. One's more reflective of Latter-day, of, a, of the Latter-day Saint mythos. And then the second one is actually more pragmatic, actual broader work in terms of what it can do. First of all, the Latter-day Saint mythos is perennial. It frames itself as, as a perennial philosophy. Um, and that's why I, I think utilizing theurgy in the temple is paramount because it uses what the phenomenologist Gene Gebzer calls the ever-present origin. It's a continual creation. The the creation story happens every time you enter the temple. It happens for the person 
that you are, I mean, you, for yourself, if you know, receiving the endowment for yourself or for whoever it is that you're representing, if you're doing proxy work. So it's, it's a perennial philosophy. So using theurgy as a component, as a hermeneutical component, brings to life Mormonism in, in what it actually is theologically within the temple, esoterically speaking, at the very least. I think exoterically, Mormonism is not perennial. I, I think that, that, that that's something that's also rather key. Sure. Is that because Mormonism highlights within the temple narrative, the creation, fall, and atonement of Adam, and that everybody who is taking place in this ritual takes the place of Adam and Eve, respectively, whether man or woman, it's a ritual reenactment of one's own life. It's participating in a biblical mythos that, is, that spans throughout all of time mm -hmm. and is continuing through time by reenacting it ritualistically. Sure. And by even allowing God, I mean, you know, at the very end of the ritual, you, you it literally embrace God at the veil, sure. right? Yep. Right. So it's, and that's why I say that it, utilizing theurgy allows for the metaphysics of Mormonism to actually come to life hmm. in its perennial form. But then pragmatically speaking, kind of taking a step back from Mormonism, it allows, you know, just like what we were doing, say, with Catholicism and the real presence of the Eucharist, or, or, or even the animation of statues within Brahmanic traditions. It allows for a broader comparison of what, what it is that Mormons do in the temple and out of the temple with other traditions that perform other theurgic, what we could call theurgic components. So in other words, theurgy also takes on a hermeneutical component, which allows what, what Algesud Venice himself calls within his own framework that he uses, comparative hermeneutics. It allows theurgy to become a broader category that is like you have the Brahmanic or the Catholic or the Lutheran or the... Mormon or, you know, and obviously that list can go on and on and on to the context in which it can apply. Because obviously theurgy, mm -hmm. theurgy may not be a universal context, but it can nevertheless still serve as a hermeneutic to interpret an experience as theurgic or even translating a word as theurgic that. Okay. Because even though obviously the Brahmins within Hindu temples, you know, for Krishna or Shiva, theurgy is not part of their lingo. Sure. So it's also one of those things where you could even use their word for a broader hermeneutical analysis. Hmm. So it, it allows this play on word, or as Uzdevinis says, this ontological conviction expressed in the terms of mythical and theological images, or as I would also, as I would also put it, hermeneutics, is neither an obligatory article of faith nor solemn assertion of perennial wisdom. Far from it. The Socratic irony and Shavik laughter dancing on the deconstructed corpses of the past is not a hindrance to behold the secret and ineffable figures in the accessible palaces, as Proculus used to say. 
So it allows for deconstruction as well. It's, it allows for, I guess you could say, a universal deconstruction of particular phenomena. That's interesting. So on the one hand, it upholds a perennial wisdom within Mormonism. And then on the other hand, deconstructs it. Huh. So it has this very, I mean, again, using another comparative hermeneutic here, it has this very yin-yang relationship. Interesting. So, so the question, my question as I was, as I was kind of like nosing through the Uz Divinis book mm-hmm. was, do I have to be a, a similar kind? Because I, I write, it, it seems like there is a, a perennialist thrust to oh, theurgy, right? The question I, I kept coming back to that I think you've answered a little bit in the sense that it can also be a hermeneutic is, is do you, do you have to be, to be a theurgist, do you also have to ascribe to a kind of perennial notion of the divine? I would say yes. Again, it's one of those things where it's like, yes and no. Okay. Because it's much like, it's a deconstruction of language for the sake of rebuilding language. Hmm. But it's the, but it's also rebuilding the same language. Okay. So that's where it's that's where it's kind of weird. I mean, here's a here, here's something that maybe that may be helpful to you. Okay, cool. Hermeneutical interpretation should be regarded as an integral part of contemplative practice, analogous to the contemplation of hieratic statues and geometric diagrams, which possesses an anagogic function. The discourse considered abstractly as a written and formally structured text is one of philosophy's semi-political tools sometimes using contests of rhetoric as a magical instrument. In modern times, however, what was originally a tool serving the kind of philosophical education that requires, in the context of rivalries between schools, that dogma be fixed in the mind, becomes the only subject of professional study, thereby reducing philosophy to philosophical discourse and discourse itself to one particular type of demythologized and desacralized prose. So, it's much like Wittgenstein criticizing J.G. Frazier's Golden Bow, mm. where he says the language that you're using is magic. Sure. To which, paraphrasing that, the language in which we're using is theurgic. Okay. Because the words that I am using invoke images in our consciousness. And this is also one of the things that harkens back to the, the, the Mormon metaphysics. Because obviously within the King Follett discourse, the, the mind of the human is, or the intelligence of humanity is the same and coexistent with that of gods. And the whole point of existence is to learn how to progress and to become like God, which gives our intelligence both a, a creative function as well as an interpretive function. And so, again, hermeneutical interpretation should be viewed as a contemplative practice that both creates and interprets. Hmm. And so, again, the language that we use in this context thereby becomes theurgic because our consciousness as analogous to God's, because we're able to interpret, it it invokes the divine. Sure, sure. And I, I guess at its root... If, if all it is is invoking the divine, then that can, you're right, that can be a lot of things. It can be a lot of things, ranging from Shiva 
to Odin, to Jesus right. Christ, to right. Foucault. <laughs> right. You know? Right. I mean, I mean, even talking about Wittgenstein, I mean, when we discuss Wittgenstein, we're bringing Wittgenstein to life. Sure. So in other words, we're trying to invoke Wittgenstein or trying to invoke, in this case, I mean, Uzdevinus even, who actually is also dead as well. So in that case, it's like, especially when you're playing with the dead in this regard, it's, it's necromancy. <laughs> <laughs> so this is another question that kind of comes from it, it being able to be so many things. Yeah. Do you, do you see that as, so obviously there, there are a lot of ways where that's a strength, mm-hmm. but is its elusiveness hard to grapple with sometimes? Oh, abs- oh, yes. And this highlights a notion within Gnostic philosophy. Okay. I mean, I, I talked about Gnosticism before. Yeah. I mean, you have that concept of gnosis, right? Right. First of all, I, the, uh, an argument that I make, and even I'd probably even explore further within my dissertation, is I view the temple and the temple rituals as a ritualized form of the King Follett discourse. Oh, okay. I think that... I think I think that that's something that's that's rather paramount, not just to understand the temple, but even to understand Latter Day Saint theology with um, the sure. discourse. Interesting, uh, because the you know the temple comes about at the same time as the King Follett discourse too. So right, like right. They're in terms of the history, they're in tandem with one another. Right, and I think the key focus within the King Follett discourse is, of course. Joseph Smith uses that that notion of you know if man does it if man does not comprehend the nature of God they do not comprehend themselves right right that's that, that's a very popular notion within Joseph Smith's teaching that is very indicative of this perennial notion of gnosis it's all about knowing who you are in relation to the infinite and the whole point within Mormonism, as I see it within its, again, theurgical component is just that. It's like the whole point of theurgy and why God even needs to come down to manifest him or herself anyway is for that, that knowledge. It kind of highlights that, that point in, in the Gospel of John, like you know, this is life eternal to know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's gnosis. I mean, even the, the, the word there, to know is related to the concept of gnosis. I guess I'm kind of beating around the bush here a little bit just by talking about gnosis, but that's why that type of notion is rather, you need that, that revelation right. of saying, I, I, I now know who I am in the face of the cosmos. And when you have that type of knowledge, that's where it, I guess you could say the, the waters part from there. Okay. So that, that's where, just, okay, that makes sense then. So that's where... You, you talking about describing something as is an important distinction that kind of helps distinguish the different strains of the perceived perennialism. Yes, yes. Rather than saying, so, but does, does theurgy then, so I know that you, you're, you've said that you're careful to, to, to when you compare to do it as, to frame it as, as, as saying this person over here is comparing, is, is experiencing this as um, 
this thing because they wouldn't describe it in those terms. But is there room in the tradition to just flatten that experiencing as and just to say that it is, if that makes sense? Well, and this is where I would invoke Wittgenstein. Okay. Because, you know, much like, you know, does religion exist anciently kind of stuff. Sure, sure. Something that that we had read in in class a while ago when Nongri just saying that religion does not exist anciently because there's no word for it. Right. That's why I'm careful. Okay. uh, When I I describe things as something, because Joseph Smith doesn't use the word theurgy. Right. I, I don't think it's something he would have been protestant to. I think it's something that he would have been open to. Sure. Just because of the similarities between, you know, reading Iamblichus and then, you know, looking at Joseph Smith's practices, I think he would have been quite fine with it personally. But sure. just because I think that doesn't mean that I, I, I can thereby have license to use a word where it doesn't belong. Right. Like theurgy belongs to the Neoplatonic tradition. Okay. And particularly to Hellenistic philosophy. But what it means in Hellenistic philosophy, metaphysically and hermeneutically, can be interpreted as X, Y, Z. Okay, cool. That's why I don't say that it's Mormon temple theurgy, because it's it's not. Right. Because... That would be lumping Mormonism into Neoplatonism when there is no connection between the two. Right. Or even, I mean, and it's the same with the divine presence. Obviously, we can see theurgic components in it, but just because we see theurgic components in it does not mean it's theurgy. Right. So theurgy means what Iamblichus (laughs) and Proculus and Damasius says what it means. Right in its context as it relates to what it is that they're doing. But what makes it interesting and why Uzdevinus is so fascinating is that he takes this concept of theurgy as presented by people like Demasius and Iamblichus who say that it's present within Egyptian temple practice, Hmm. even though they have nothing to do with Egyptian temple practices. Like, like they weren't initiated into the hieratic practices in Egypt. Right. And yet what they're doing is incredibly analogous to it, very much so, to the point where Uzdevinus, you know, goes so far as to light as to the theurgic practices of the Egyptian temple, but he never calls it, at least not that I've found, at least from my readings, but he never calls it Egyptian theurgy. Okay. Interesting. That makes the Dewey in me happy, right? Is that there in right in theurgy, there seems to be a distinction between theurgy, a theurgy, and theurgical, right? Yeah. So your approach to theurgy. So it's the adjective. So my approach would be, yeah, it'd be using it. So like I could call something theurgic because then it's an adjective. Right, right. But if I were to call something like Mormon theurgy, that's using it as a noun, which makes it, you know, means that Mormonism is theurgy and that's not correct. Yeah, nice. So this is great because honestly, I think, I mean me, a lot of my stuff is saying, let's take everything that you're talking about 
pat it on the back and like say, go stand over there for a minute while we do stuff with our feet on the ground. Right. So, so theurgy is not something that I'm terribly uh, familiar with. And so this has just been awesome for me. So another question I have then, and then we're, uh, yeah, so we're about to hit the hour mark. So, so just maybe one more question before we kind of start to, to, to wind things down is in theurgy, because I think insofar as we're, as, as we're like loosely talking about Mormon studies, the, the last couple of years we've seen church services get cut down to two hours, right? Which nobody's mad about. <laughs> God bless two-hour church. And then a kind of a turn to a, a home-centered church that focuses gospel instruction and learning on being kind of a familiar, a familial thing, right? So we take away an hour with the community. Then we say most instruction has to happen in the family, which which I think is I think is a good move, right? Because then it's an interesting move because there, there are ways you can interpret that to say we're sick and tired of being told that we didn't teach you this in Sunday school. So now we're going to say, not our responsibility. You're you're, you're right. Your parents didn't teach you that. So be mad at them and not us, but then too, right on the heels. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. So, right. And then right on the heels of kind of like this home centered church, coronavirus happens. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of us don't wind up going to church for a really long time, right? So I was in, I was back east. Um, church got canceled in March. I didn't go back to church until September. Mm-hmm. And but I think out here and where where I'm at right now in California is a little bit more intense. Um, I don't think I think there were a handful of stakes and wards that didn't start meeting again, even until like like mid 2021, right? And so you were divorced from the community in that way. It, what does what does theurgy and the the theurgical have to say about community? Is there a way that theurgy could be read that might not encourage the kind of the splintering of the community, but leave room for a further kind of another step back from the community? If people see the home-centered church thing as being better because they don't necessarily like what's happening in the cultural church right now, is does does theurgy say, yeah, have your have your personal kind of family God, or is there a pull back to the community with theurgy? There's a couple answers to that. Okay, the first one I actually think is an interesting dialogue. Well, more of an interesting debate between Plotinus and Iamblichus for example. Mm. First of all, one of the things about ancient philosophy that needs to be understood is that what we would call religious devotion is what ancient philosophy was. So sure. it's like, so the sure. whole idea that, you know, Plato and Aristotle were only concerned with what we call the secular sciences is nonsense. They, sure. they had what we would call religious ideas in mind. Oh, sure. So with that kind of backdrop, Plotinus was very ascetic in his metaphysics Mm. so much so that the the, i guess the one so he had the concept of the one and the many which is you know trademark plotinus right and the whole point of the philosophic life is to be able to for the 
the splintered Benny to return back to the one. The thing about Plotinus is he views the incarnation of the soul as incomplete, hmm. meaning that he actually sees the soul not as completely embodied. And that's what allows it to be able to return back to the one. Hmm. So that, that type of metaphysics highlights, first of all, I mean, it highlights what Plotinus views of the body and the material world are very negative and that you need to be an ascetic to ascend back to the one. And it also is very highly individualistic. Sure. Of course, Plotinus himself was this sort of spiritual master, a guru, whatever you want to call him, that people would turn to, to learn, how can I ascend back to the one? And he would teach certain practices. Usually one of the practices is called incubation, hmm. where you would sit in caves and meditate. Uh, and fast for long periods of time until your your mind would go back to the one. Uh, of course, the issue was always what happens when you come back to the mini. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, right, yeah. And that's where Iamblichus comes in. Iamblichus, and this is where theurgy is also important because theurgy is not as important of a concept in Plotinus because with Plotinus, it's ascending to the one. The one doesn't, I mean, the one's present, of course, but the whole point of the philosophic practice is to transcend the illusory many. Mm. Whereas for Iamblichus, he, he believes that embodiment is paramount, which of course, you know, sounds very Mormon. Right, <laughs> right. Yep. He believes that the soul does actually become fully incarnate. And that it's actually the gods that come down to us that need to come down to us that that then we can then so so Iamblichus doesn't deny the heavenly ascent back to the one, but he says that there needs to be this sort of intermediary connection between hmm. the two. Okay, and because he puts this this importance on, I mean, of course, this I know this sounds like a tangent, but why this intersects with your question is that with Plotinus, it's highly individualistic. You go sit in a cave and by yourself, you fast and you meditate. Right, right. Whereas Iamblichus says, no, 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 no. We're going to get a statue or an amulet or something wherewith the community can then revolve around, mm. right? That, they, that, that the devotion can then be given back to the God, that God can give him, you know, give themselves to us. We can achieve that gnosis together and then ascend to the one. So he was very, I mean, of course you can still have an individualistic theurgy that was still part of Iamblichus, but it also had a lot of communal aspects to it as well. Like, so, because he felt that the highly individualistic and ascetization of Plotinus downplayed why the material world even existed then. It's like, if, mm. and, and so obviously why I think this, this segues back into Mormonism is that the one thing about Mormonism is that even though church is lessened, even though community, well, first of all, family is still a community. So it's like, so community, I is did, still, that's a fair point. Sure. So community is still highlighted as a paramount. In fact, it's the closest community that you could possibly forge. Sure. Right. So community is still something that's highlighted. But the one thing that's still central, I mean, even Russell M. Nelson said it just, just this past conference, the church's devotion still centers around the temple. Sure. 
So it's like, so that's something that still is paramount to Latter-day Saint practice. Right. And, you know, and it's, it's echoed in a lot of mythic themes, like in, you know, King Benjamin creating the, in, in the Book of Mormon, creating the tower right. near the temple and everyone building their tents facing the temple. Right. To yeah. Hear him preach. You know, that's the motif that's always used whenever they, whenever church leaders talk about the temple. Sure. Again, I, which is why I, I continue, I like continually highlighting that theurgic component because it, it does reflect a lot of what's going on within Iamblichus's community at this time and debating because it goes away from this uber individualism of Plotinus and wants to augment communal materialism in a sense, but, but materialism, not in the sense of material gain, obviously, but that, right. Yeah. You know, we're all in this together kind of thing and that we can all achieve it together. Yeah. And I see that type of attitude within Mormonism as well, even, even with the, the shifting of, of church practices, even though church sure. may be lessened. I mean, there's still activities. They still do ministering, even though I still think it's a, <laughs> we could chuckle yeah, right. about that one. Yeah, right. So the community aspect is still highlighted, but again, it's, the the two aspects that I think are still highlighted as the most paramount factors within Mormonism are the temple and the sacrament, which again kind of just come back to the yeah, both being kind of very theurgic kind of things. Very cool. Any 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 wrapping up thoughts you want to give before we sign off? Well, I think the last component of theurgy that also needs to be stressed before we sign off that even goes back to Nibley. Like why was Nibley even doing all of his comparative work in the first place? Of course, Nibley's comparative work was that Egyptians were just, were just ancient Mormons. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. But despite all that, the thing that continually fascinates me about Mormonism and especially comparing it to things like theurgy and even a paper that I'm, I'm working on currently uh, is the concept of theosis or becoming like God. Okay. Like the, the, the whole point of theurgy is not just to communicate with God. It's to become like God. I mean, and, sure. that, and that's why gnosis is key. It's like gnosis is, it's about identifying oneself with the divine. So that way you in turn become divine. And yeah, it's, it's one of those concepts that, has always stirred my imagination in a lot of in major ways because it, it it harkens back to what I experienced first in the temple and even sometimes still experience whenever I go back. Not all the time, but sometimes when I go back, I was actually just watching The Faith of an Observer a couple of days ago because sometimes it, it's a documentary about Nibley that was made by his son. And he was talking about Egyptian temple rituals. And he said the whole reason for it is to, is to open the mind to different dimensions. Like what the Egyptians were worried about is not this dimension, but, but another one. And to try to, mm. you know, to try to be a part of it. And, and there's so many different ways in which you can think about that. Right. Both in terms of even doing comparative work with the fourth dimension in mind, such as like what Ioan Culliano tried to do. He was a protege of Pagliotti. Right. So again, it's one of those things where the, the, the idea of humans becoming like God in the, ver in the many forms that that can take, be it Platinian, Iamblichian, Brahmanic, Nordic, Christian, Taoist, 
Buddhist. I mean, there's so many different ways in which that type of notion is expressed. And it's just something that's just always stirred my imagination. And it's just something that just drives, that drives my comparative work. It drives, it just drives what I do. It drives how I think, it drives what I feel, it drives, it drives all those things. So what, so what, what I'm hearing you say is that it gets down to the three basic questions everybody asks themselves. <laughs> Who am I? Yes. What am I doing here? And where am I going when I die? Yep. <laughs> the terrible questions as Nibley, as Nibley called Right. Them. Yeah, right. That's, 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 that, that's the word I was, I, I had Nibley in mind when I brought those up, but I couldn't, I couldn't, terrible was the word I was looking for there. The terrible um, questions. Yeah. Well, hopefully though, your work can help make them a little less terrible, a little more substantive, right? Oh, that's the hope. I mean, I don't claim to have answers. I just claim to claim to have, try to understand. No, you're how right. yeah. other, I, I, it's, it's more of, I claim, I, I claim to try to understand how others claim to understand it. Which sure. I guess in other ways helps me understand it. Sure. And I mean, at the end of the day, most of what we can do as academics is as aspiring academics, academics, I don't know, we're PhDs. When do we get to call ourselves academics? Uh, well, we both have master's degrees. I mean, that's fair. So there's that, right? So as, as I'm going to do it as academics, I think we can count it as a win if if all we do is is make someone stop and think for a second, right? Which you know highlights well, and and that highlights the whole point of philosophy, according to Socrates. Sure, it's like the whole point of of philosophy is not it's learning it's learning how to die. Yep. How to die well. How to die well. And that takes on how many different ways of expression. I mean, and, and that's why the Egyptian form is so, you know, it just stirs the imagination because they just had this broad, expansive mythos, ritualistic sure. components. Sure. And, right. And, you know, and that's, again, that's, and that's why I, I bring it back to, to Mormonism. I think that's, that's what Mormonism is all about. It, it's, it, it's instilling a philosophic mythos. It's trying to sure. teach its people to learn how to die. Hey, right, yeah. And so insofar as anybody tries to teach, is teaching their people how to die, then, then there's, there's good, fruitful work to be done there. Well, thank you so much for the hour we've spent. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you. Theurgy is not as weird as it was <laughs> when you originally sent me the Ouse Divinis book, and I appreciate <laughs> you for that. Well, I'm glad I could at least help with something. It's still... I'm interested in the weird, but this is... <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm trying to help make the weird not so weird, right? I mean, again, it kind of comes back to what I was mentioning before. People, people are so reticent about the temple, and that's about the Latter Day Saint temple. Like, you know, people, and that's something that I, I think a lot of it has to do with it just being weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, we wish you the best of luck. And we'll catch you all next time on The Analyst and the Fool, Liminality Comparison and the Quest for Reality with a little R.